Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Today's topic is the neuroscience behind seven traits of anxious people. And I think knowing the science helps us. It creates more awareness around the whole situation. And once we know that there is science behind this, we don't feel <laughs> like such losers, like we have this anxiety and it's anxiety's our fault. You know, really, anxiety is your brain acting normally to an abnormal situation, typically in childhood, not always, but childhood trauma changes the way our brain is developing, and it changes the the tracks, the pathways, and specifically what I call the subcortical pathways, the deep, deep pathways in our brain, amygdala, hippocampus, pons, medulla, the deep pathways in our brain. And that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, you can't heal a feeling problem with a thinking solution because none of these structures amygdala, pons, medulla, really understand English or whatever language that you speak. So there is changes to our brain that neuroscience is starting to see with these seven traits of anxious people. So the seven traits are, one, increased attention to threat. I'm going to go through them all and then we'll take them one by one. So one, increased attention to threat. Two is difficulty self-soothing and being able to perceive cues of safety. Three is increased avoidance. We avoid what scares us. Four is a heightened reactivity to unpredictable threats. As I'll talk about when I get to this one, people with anxiety hate uncertainty more than almost anything else because of typically what uncertainty meant to them when they were a child. So number five, overestimation of threat and underestimation of resources. There are neuroscientific principles behind why we do this, but we definitely do that. I have many posts on how we overestimate threat and how we underestimate our ability to deal with it. Six, a heightened activity of what's called the inner critic. Now, I call this jabs as well, self-judgment, self-abandonment, self-blame, and self-shame. And we'll talk a little bit about that and what you can do about that to understand it. And seven, under-functioning cognitive control of the fear response. 
So we can control the fear response to some extent. I know I get really down on cognitive therapies and psychotherapies as a healing modality for anxiety, but there are definite cognitive ways that we can reduce our anxiety. But we need actually to add in the somatic, the more non-cognitive ways too, because we need both. We need the cognitive structures being in place and the subcortical lower brain areas that were encoded by trauma when we we're younger. We need to change those as well. So let's go back to the start. So we're talking about one, increased attention to threat. We have something called the reticular activating system in our brainstem, which is kind of like the lower part of the brain, the brain that attaches to the spinal cord. And it basically sets our our ability to look for threat. Some people are very jumpy. They find threat in everything. I'm kind of like that too. Whereas other people are just la-di-da, they just go through, you know, they could be in a, a dangerous situation and not even know it. But we anxious people are very attuned to any kind of threat. And if there's no threat there, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, we'll make one up, you know, because we don't like the uncertainty, which I'm going to talk about too fairly soon. So when we're in survival physiology of anxiety and alarm, our brains are evolutionarily programmed to seek out threat. So it's, it's a natural response. So if your brain is in this heightened activity, it's got all this cortisol and norepinephrine running around in it, it, it says, okay, well, there must be a threat because we've got all this cortisol and this, this epinephrine running around in our brain. Where's the threat? And if there's no obvious threat, like if you're just lying in bed with your covers up to your chin, what will happen is your brain will make one up. That analytical left hemisphere of our brains that wants to know, that left hemisphere wants to know. The right hemisphere is more artistic. It's more like, yeah, dude, whatever. You know, all right, all right, all right. It's just like whatever happens. But that left hemisphere, it wants to know. So it, it'll make up a threat to make sense in our mind of the alarm we obviously feel in our body. And basically what it's doing is it's creating worry. So we have this sense that we're under impending attack or, or impending doom. People talk to me all the time about, you know, when I'm, when I'm alarmed, I just have this feeling like something bad's going to happen. And that's uncertain. So what the left hemisphere does is it starts creating worries to make sense of that uncertainty. And that's one of the things that worry does is it, is it lowers our level of uncertainty. That's why we do it. So when we're young, and we have an alcoholic parent or an abusive parent, and we have so much uncertainty in our lives, we will do anything to minimize uncertainty. And believe it or not, worry is one of those things that actually decreases uncertainty. And I'll, tell, I'll give you an example. So say you have a headache, and you've had a headache for a couple of days, and you're starting to wonder, oh my God, what could this be? What could this be? It's like, it's a brain tumor. It's like, okay, well... So in our mind, we secrete a little bit of dopamine in there. When we, when we, we feel like we've hit the nail on the head, we've, we've, released, we've decreased uncertainty because now it's not just this diffuse headache that could be anything. Now we've made it a brain tumor. Now we've made this uncertain a little more certain using worry. But the thing is then, then we believe the worry that we have a brain tumor. And I'll tell you why we believe the worry in a few minutes. Because our brains are, are basically, uh, the rational part of our brain gets paralyzed. So any worry we have seems more real. 
And the, pro- the problem with that is that we create these worries, we create these giant issues, and then we don't have the brain power to really understand that this is just something that we made up because that left hemisphere wants to resolve that worry. So we have an increased attention to threat, and then when we react to that, when our body and mind react to that threat with a survival response, we force ourselves to look for things that are worrisome. And typically in our, in our environment these days, we're not faced with physical threat anymore. Most of our threats come from inside of us. And I have this little saying in my book that's, that says, primitive man feared his predators. Modern man fears his creditors. Which is true because most of us create most of our stress from the inside. That left hemisphere wants to know. It wants to know. It doesn't like uncertainty. So it will make a worry to decrease uncertainty, but then you believe the worries and then you're kind of screwed. So really understanding that if you're anxious, you have an increased attention to threat. You will, you know that you will give threats much more credibility than they deserve. So when you know that and you you develop and cultivate this awareness like, hey, I am doing this to myself. You may not be able to stop it right away, but the awareness that you have an increased attention to threat, you are much more likely as an anxious person to make threats more real. And I'll tell you why that is in a few segments down the line here. You have a tendency to make things appear much worse than they really are. And one of the reasons why we do that is because we have this alarm that's down in our body. And we want, part of us wants to stay in our head because we don't want to go back down into that feeling town in our body. So we have this attention to threat. And then when we see the threat that maybe even isn't there, we make huge stories and worries about it to keep ourselves in our heads so that we don't have to face going back down into where the old alarm sits in our body. So that's number one. Number two is difficulty self-soothing and a difficulty in perceiving cues of safety. Now, in the human animal, emotion almost always trumps reason. If you're out shopping and you see a jacket that you like, and that jacket's $600 and you don't really have $600, you buy the damn jacket anyway because emotion trumps reason. Now, this is bad news for worriers because we experience survival emotion a lot. So that survival emotion affects our decision-making. And this dictates how we see the world. Like, see item number one, increased attention to threat. We see things as threat. So there's a, a, a nucleus in the, in the brain called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. And this plays a key role in regulating the fight, flight, freeze response. And in those of us with anxiety, this bed nucleus of the stria terminalis may keep our fight, flight, and freeze more active for longer time. So it's hard for us to come down from a scary experience because of this bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. The other thing about the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis is it's probably more activated by by internal things like worry. So this is one of the other reasons why worry keeps us on edge. It prevents us from self-soothing because this particular nucleus keeps vibrating or whatever it does in our brains that makes us active in our bodies. 
and that survival physiology continues. So this is why it takes us so long to self-soothe. And when you're activated, it's very difficult to perceive that you're safe. You can tell yourself, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I often tell people is to say, am I safe in this moment? Which I think is very helpful. Sort of sitting there and realizing, hey, even though my body is freaking out right now, am I safe in this moment? And realizing that you are truly safe in this moment. That's one of the more cognitive things that you can do when you are feeling anxious to soothe yourself. Now, if your body's highly, highly activated, that won't work as well. And that's why I recommend you practice telling yourself, I am safe in this moment, or am I safe in this moment, a number of times a day so that you get used to the fact that, yes, you are actually safe in this moment. Now, number three, increased avoidance. In we worriers, the amygdala, we have two, left and right, are always on high alert for anything that's ever hurt us in the past, emotionally or physically. There's a place called the central nucleus of the amygdala, the CEA, that's particularly adept at recognizing a previously experienced painful stimulus. So if you were bit by a dog when you were three, and you have this irrational fear of dogs now as an adult, your amygdala is probably in charge of that. So anything that's ever hurt you in the past, the amygdala will recognize it has a super highway down to your brainstem, which fires up your body, your blood pressure, your sweating. So it sends you into this full body reaction. And it's the central nucleus of the amygdala that's doing that. Anything you recognize in the past, if you say were chased around by your brother with a toy snake when you were younger and you see a snake cross your path, same idea. Central nucleus fires that energy into your brainstem, which lights up your body. And when your body lights up, you have no choice but to feel anxiety. And as a result, what we worriers do is we actively avoid anything that even looks slightly like a threat from our past. So if you were in grade six and you were giving a a talk to your classmates, show and tell or whatever it is, and they all laughed at you, in the future, you're really going to have a reaction to talking in front of people. This is how it works. So it's learning that, hey, anything that I feel scared about Maybe I should explore that a little further. Maybe I should go into it, do a little bit of desensitization. Now, this has to be done under professional guidance, depending on the depth and uh, and intensity of the reaction. But once we understand that anything that's ever hurt us in the past, that amygdala will react to, we can learn through awareness to put ourselves in that situation where we are in this place that scared us. And if we have someone with us with a regulated nervous system, we can actually start to heal that old process. And there is evidence that the amygdala becomes less reactive to threats, provided that we do it under the right circumstances. We heal it under the right circumstances. So number four, heightened reactivity to unpredictable threats. This again is the bed nucleus of the stride terminalis. Because the amygdala itself is a sort of a general fear center. The bed nucleus of the stride terminalis responds a lot to something that's unpredictable. 
if we don't know what's going to happen, that bed nucleus really gets activated. And I think that's what supercharges worry because we can never reassure ourselves too much when we worry. There's so much uncertainty about worry that it just, we get in this loop of the worry fires up our body and our body fires up the worry. And this is particularly pronounced in unpredictable threats. So you're walking home from school, you don't know if your mom's going to be drunk. Like that's an unpredictable threat. And that's where the amygdala, the bed nucleus of the stride terminalis, and this other part of our brain called the insular cortex plays a role too because the insular cortex kind of acts as a translator between the body to the mind and the mind to the body. So if, we're, if our body is all revved up and anxious, that insula will translate that into the mind and the mind will start working with that, chewing on it, making up worries. So the insula, I think, is going to be shown to play a major role in anxiety because it's kind of like the way station of the body. As your body gets more activated, the insular cortex says, hey, hey, you know, our body's activated. There, there must be some threat. And again, that left hemisphere jumps in and goes, okay, I don't see a threat actively, so I'm going to make one up for you. So what do you do about that? Well, you calm your body. Like you really focus on calming your body, which will sort of calm down that insular cortex, which will calm the whole situation down. And then when you calm your entire system down, you start being able to think rationally again. As I said before, humans are emotional creatures more than they're rational ones. So what we need to do is move you from the emotional, which a lot of us warriors are, we're more emotional than the general population, into a more rational being. And when we become more rational and grounded in our bodies, then the worries that we create, sometimes we just laugh at. It's like, that's ridiculous. It's just a headache. It's, it's not a tumor. I, I wrote this whole thing just to be able to say that. So anyway, so now number five, overestimation of threat and underestimation of resources. This is a big one. So when we're in alarm, we're ruled by our emotional brain more than our rational brain. And this is thought to be an evolutionary response to ensure our survival. But we have Stone Age brains in a digital world, and this doesn't help us now with the odds of being eaten by a tiger are much lower than being ridiculed on Instagram. So alarm physiology in the body and mind diverts energy away from our rational prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that would say, hey, this worry is ridiculous, and we literally become unable to cognitively see that our worries that we made up ourselves are ridiculous. So again, it's being able to stand back from your worries, ground yourself in your body, and then really reevaluate those worries as, is this true? But you can't do it while you're all revved up. You have to ground your body first. And when you ground your body, you get your rational prefrontal cortex back and you stop overestimating the threats and then underestimating your ability to deal with it. Because that combination in anxiety really crushes us. We think that our worries are real and our ability to handle it is not. And that combination makes us so 
activated and alarmed that we lose the ability to see the forest for the trees and see what we're worried about. A, we made up ourselves, and B, we can actually do something about it rather than just sitting there and worry. We can ground ourselves in our body with breath, with smelling an essential oil, with you know putting our hand on our chest. There's so many things we can do to regain that rational mind back so that we're not carried away by the runaway train of worries. Number six, heightened activity of the inner critic. Now, I call this jabs, self-judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. And I think this inner critic voice starts when we're very young, when there's problems, there's trauma in our own homes. And we can't blame our parents because our parents are omnipotent. We have to see them as the figures that look after us. So who's left to blame? Well, yourself. We create this self-judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame for the things that we have no control over in our household. And this is what children do. There's a, a great saying that says, when you abuse, neglect, and abandon a child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves. Now, this self-referential thinking, this negative self-referential thinking, may be coming from a place in our brain called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is part of the what's called the default mode network of your brain. The default mode network of your brain is what your brain does when it's not doing something in particular. So they, they found this not that long ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, that when they put people in an fMRI scanner and they get them to do math problems, when they stop, when they solve the problem, their brain goes into a very similar type of function, type of state each time. And it's kind of like the daydreaming state of your brain. So if the daydreaming state of your brain is affected by your own inner critic, when your brain isn't doing anything, your brain will start going into these negative self-referential shames and blames and judgments of yourself. Which, of course, for those of us with anxiety is not good because that fires our body into alarm and the whole cascade of what I've talked about in the previous little five or six segments here gets worse. And we lose our ability to rationally look at what's happening in the world and we see things through the eyes of fear as opposed to the eyes of, of rationality. Now, this posterior cingulate cortex has been postulated to play a role in negative introspection. So, and it thought that it may even house something like guilt and shame. So, if this default mode network holds this posterior cingulate cortex, and this is what our brain does when it kind of, you know, goes off into a daydreaming state, and our daydreaming state is naturally anxiety provoking to us. This is why it's so hard to break out of an anxious mood because we keep getting taken back into this place. I remember watching this documentary once about this. They painted oleic acid on, a, on an ant who is quite clearly alive. And oleic acid is what gets secreted by an ant when it dies. So even though this ant was completely alive and squirming around, all his compatriots would grab him and throw him out of the, out of the anthill because they assumed he was dead. Their default setting was to just get rid of this ant. Now, in contrast, in opposition, our default setting is to throw the ant back in to our negative psyche. So that's what we get. We get the automatic opposite of that. We're not throwing out negative thoughts. We're throwing them back in 
just as a default state. So what do you think that's going to do to our anxiety? If our default state is actually to, to think shaming, blaming, abandoning, and judging thoughts of ourselves, how do you think that's going to affect our own psyche, our own ability to soothe ourselves when our default state, our automatic state, is to be negative towards ourselves? And this may be why negative, intrusive thoughts seem to appear when we're trying to rest and why you worry less at work when your mind is occupied. So when your mind is occupied, you don't fall back into that default mode. But when you're trying to rest, you relax in a way into that default mode, which starts up the judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming thoughts of that posterior cingulate cortex. So what do we do about that? Again, it's, it's regulating yourself in your body and being aware that these thoughts are byproducts of this old traumatic wounding that you went through as a child. They really have nothing to do with what's happening to you today, but it's a vestige of your old trauma. And it, you keep getting reminded of this through this default mode network, through this posterior cingulate cortex. And if you can realize that these judging, abandoning, blaming, shaming thoughts are just automatic. They're not personal to you. They're just automatic. And in a way, it's your brain's way of trying to protect you by saying, hey, don't be these things. But it does it in such a backhanded, accusatory way that all it does is just fire up the alarm in our body, which of course makes our anxiety worse. Another thing that works against this is number seven, underfunctioning of cognitive control of the fear response. People with anxiety seem to have less of an ability to calm themselves with their thoughts. A possible reason for this is an underfunctioning anterior cingulate cortex. We just talked about the posterior cingulate cortex sort of holding shame, but the anterior cingulate cortex is known to have a modulating effect on the amygdala. And studies in mice have shown that stimulating the ACC anterior cingulate cortex, reduces activity in the amygdala. So if we increase the ACC activity, and meditation has been shown to increase that activity, and this may be a reason why meditation seems to help with anxiety, because it helps increase the activity in this anterior cingulate cortex, and as the anterior cingulate cortex gets more activity, it's able to calm the amygdala more. And that's why I think mindfulness probably helps too. Anything that brings you into present moment awareness, I think, builds that ACC and builds that strength to help modulate and mediate the amygdala. So these are some of the things that I love studying in neuroscience because we've made tremendous advances in neuroscience in the last 25 years, but unfortunately, they really haven't translated into the clinical setting. They really haven't helped people get better. I think healing, especially from emotional issues, is a very non-scientific, more feeling-based process. And when you try to use science to explain feeling, we, we understand so little about emotion in the brain. Like we're still, the scientists are still arguing. There's a place for fear. Like is there a specific fear center in the brain? And there really isn't. There's really not a lot of evidence that there is a location in the brain for any particular emotion. The brain is very complicated and it works as a team. There's a lot of things that happen to make us feel sad, to make us feel happy, to make us feel compassionate, to make us feel empathy. There's a lot of things that go on. 
So what I try and do is present these neuroscientific principles so that we understand that we're not freaks, that we anxious people. There are definite neuroscientific pathways that mediate anxiety. And we can see these in fMRI studies, we can see them in the studies of the brain that show that people with anxiety have these certain pathways that are activated and other pathways that really aren't. So I think that helps us understand and, and feel better about ourselves so we're not judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming ourselves because we have this problem called anxiety. Because it is a difficult thing to deal with. And I, I'd rather use the term alarm than anxiety. And many of you know who listen to my podcast know that I, I prefer the term alarm because that's really what it is. And science really hasn't helped us heal alarm much. It'll help us cope, absolutely. But to really heal it, you've got to feel it. You can't heal a feeling problem with a thinking solution. Science will help, but we really need to get into this feeling state and allow ourselves to actually feel the alarm so that we can process it, so that we can learn how to live with it, and then integrate it so that it's not triggering these judgments, abandonments, blames, and shames of ourselves that just keep us locked in this anxious, alarmed pattern. And I want to give you tools that will help you integrate and resolve this state because it's very uncomfortable, I know, for personal experience. So that was the neuroscience behind seven traits of anxious people, and I did get really nerdy. And like I said, I love this stuff. I'm really hoping that science is going to start giving us some really hopeful and productive tools to heal anxiety and alarm in the future. So thanks for joining me on this episode. I really, really appreciate it. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you the next time on the Anxiety Rx podcast.